Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. Today, we're going to talk about what makes a perfect commuter haven. The idea of leaving the hustle and bustle of the inner city behind and moving to a location further out that offers more space, affordability and even a lifestyle change can be quite appealing. And with an increasing number of people working from home, living further away from the city may be a more viable option than it's ever been. Later on in the show, we'll be talking house and land packages with Paul Wolfe, Director of Porter Davis Homes. But first, I'm speaking to Greg Moran, a senior associate at the Grattan Institute, about what makes a great commuter suburb. Greg, thank you for joining me. Hi, Alice. Good to be with you. Greg, can you tell me what you think would make a good commuter suburb? What it really comes down to is when people make the decision to move to a commuter suburb or commuter town, what they're really doing is essentially choosing to accept a longer commute to work in exchange for some other benefits. So I guess the first thing people are looking for is they need to have an acceptable way to get into work. So whether that's a good train connection into the city or you know a drive that's not too long and not too congested. But I guess what people are also looking for are perhaps a lifestyle that they can't get in the city. So they might be looking for mm. um, the ability to live in a, in a slightly nicer natural environment. So in the countryside or on a coastal environment. So they're kind of exchanging what they can't get in the sort of inner or middle suburbs for perhaps a setting and a lifestyle that they would enjoy more. Mm. Have you got a fixed number or other sort of kilometres from the CBD or or a time of travel of what makes a commuter suburb? Is is it a fairly black and white sort of figure or is it it quite personal and subjective for different people? No, I think it's really a personal thing. So look, there might be different sort of technical definitions out there for what is and isn't a commuter town or suburb. But sort of as I said before, I think that concept really just relates to any time someone chooses to accept a longer commute in exchange for some other benefits and so what that means is it could be anything from an outer suburb of a metropolitan area to a suburb or town that sits at the very edge or just outside a metropolitan area so say Macedon or Bacchus Marsh outside Melbourne but it could also be a regional city or town that's a bit further out but still not too far away so Examples of that would be for commutes into Melbourne, it could be Geelong or Ballarat. Uh, For Sydney, it could be the Central Coast or Wollongong. And for Brisbane, it could be the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast. And and has Australia's relationships with these areas evolved over the years? Yeah, so I think to sort of set the context here, it's important to realise that long commutes are still quite rare in our biggest cities. So up until about 2016, half of workers in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane spent no more than 30 minutes commuting one way. And 90%. Wow, that's incredible. I find that really interesting, that number. It's really surprising, isn't it? Because I think so much emphasis in the discussion out there is on the longer commutes. And there certainly are some. But the fact remains that a lot of us actually do live reasonably close to where we work. But we have seen a bit of evidence since the mid-2000s of commutes at the longer end of the spectrum getting longer. Mm -hmm. So that might reflect more people taking up the sort of commuter suburb or commuter town option. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing it's things like affordability that are pushing people out while also people wanting to be near certain schools for their children that might be deemed better in certain areas. Is that that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I I think, as you say, the big one is, is probably affordability. So as we know, over the past decade or more, 
buying a house in the inner or middle suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne has become increasingly unaffordable for a lot of people. And so that's obviously given people reason to, to look further afield. But I think the other interesting trend there, and it's probably going to touch on something that we're going to talk about later in terms of what's happening with the pandemic, and that's attitudes to workplace flexibility changing. Mm. So, Greg, tell us what would make an ideal commuter suburb. I think it's lovely idea in theory to think, oh, yes, I'll have rolling green hills and a nice little dirt road. But in a practical sense, what sort of things should people really bear in mind to be really important key pieces when looking at what makes a great commuter suburb? Yeah, so I think the ideal suburb or town will really depend on the individual or the individual family because it's all about trade-offs. And of course, different things will matter more or less to different people. So I think the sorts of things people should be thinking about are kind of as we touched on earlier, the commute time. So, you know, are you going to be happy we're spending this hour or even over an hour doing the commute, but also the type of commute you're going to be doing. So, you know, will you be getting the train? If so, how will you be getting to the station in the morning? Will you have to drive? What's the parking like at the station? Mm. So all those bits of logistics you should be thinking about as well, because they can obviously add to the total commute time. You should, of course, be thinking about the house and property you want and what you can or can't afford in, in the different areas you're looking at. Also think about how you're going to get around the suburb or town itself. So are there good local public transport links that you can make use of? And if there aren't, can you or are you happy to rely on your car? Mm. Another one, what kind of services do you need access to? So sort of health or educational services. So if you have kids, what schools or childcare centres are in the area? And again, the, the transport question, how will the kids get there in the morning? And I, I think perhaps one final one for people to think about is what are you and the kids going to be doing outside of work and school hours? So what are the social, recreational and cultural opportunities available? Obviously, when you're in the inner or middle suburbs of a big city, there's plenty going on there's plenty to get involved in you know what can you get involved in uh in this new place that you're looking to move to mm. uh greg if we if we turn now to sort of pre-pandemic and where we are now with covid uh, can you just sort of paint a picture for me about what, what sort of shifts you, you you envisage that we may see in the months to come when it comes to people people's appetite for living in commuter commuter suburbs yeah sure so i think just to give a bit of context it's worth pointing out that before the pandemic, very few people worked from home. So in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, it was about 5%. Uh, in Perth and Adelaide, it was about 4%. So That's a tiny number, isn't it? Absolutely. When you say work from home, do you mean on a full-time basis? Is that what sort of defines work from home? I think that these numbers will have come out of the census. So it's probably a snapshot of a particular week or day as to what people did. So I think it's a reasonable indication of what I guess people on average are sort of doing overall. Mm. But although the numbers are quite small, there was some evidence of them trending up, probably unsurprisingly. So I guess, you know, now that we're going through this pandemic, a lot of us are finding that working from home can work in the right circumstances. And so mm. I think it's pretty safe to assume that the, we are going to see those rates heading up in terms of people working from home. And of course, if people aren't required to be at their workplace as often, they may, of course, be more open to living further from it. Mm. But it's interesting. So although I think we will see sustained changes, I'm not sure we'll see a huge rush of people looking to move out of the city and take the commuter town option, probably for a few reasons. So just firstly, I think the fact remains that most jobs can't be done from home. So there's actually some really recent research that's just come out that estimates that 39% of jobs 
in Australia can be done from home. So it's, it's a fair whack, but it still means the majority, there's 61% that can't be done from home. So even though a lot of us have been going through this pandemic and seeing the, the benefits and issues with working from home, there's still a lot of workers and commuters who have just not been part of this kind of working from home phenomenon that uh, a lot of us have been. A second thing is I wouldn't underestimate the desire of some businesses and organisations to want to snap back to the old way of doing things if and when they can. Mm. And so I think we can all imagine some bosses and managers who have strong personal preferences for good or bad reasons for employees to be in the workplace. Thirdly, and while, as I say, a lot of us have found that working from home does work in the right circumstances, I don't think we want to lose too many of those benefits that we only get from bringing in the same physical workspace. So, of course, there's the whole, you know, water cooler and kitchen and going for coffee social aspect to this, but there's also a productivity aspect. So Mm. although we have some really great technology that allows us to communicate and share information and we're using an example of that right now, I think there are still a lot of situations where there's really no substitute for the ability to have a face-to-face discussion. And I'm not sure uh, we want to be losing too much of that. Yeah. And I wonder how people who do make that sort of switch to a commuter suburb will find the fatigue of that commute when they're actually doing it day in, day out on a regular high-volume basis. I think there is evidence out there and research about... Um, you know, the levels of satisfaction from commuters that do long commutes. And also there's some research that talks about how a lot of people don't end up doing it for a long time. So that does actually Mm. suggest that people might do it for a couple of years, but as we're talking about, people might kind of tire of it after some time and it seemed like a good idea for a while or perhaps their circumstances change. And so, yeah, it is something that people might try for a couple of years, but work out that it's not for them. Greg, that was great. Thank you so much. It's a really fascinating topic and I know it's one that a lot of people are really pondering at the moment. So I really appreciate your your candid answers and discussion that we just had today. You're welcome. Thanks, Alice. Commuting can have its advantages for lifestyle and the bank balance, but being on a train for hours and hours a day can take its toll. Here is a commuter who has reclaimed those hours during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, My name's Brian. I live in Springwood in the Lower Blue Mountains. Prior to COVID, I was commuting, and that's about a two-hour trip each way. We were just kind of priced out of the inner city, and we were looking further and further and out, going to lots of auctions. And finally, we just decided that we'd look at the Blue Mountains, because we'd always liked the Blue Mountains and I'd lived in Katoomba for a while. And we just decided that Springwood was probably the best choice. We've been living here for almost five years. I would say it's really improved our quality of life. We have a daughter. One thing we wanted was for her to maybe grow up near the bush. And really quickly, we felt like we were part of the community here. Before COVID started, I was driving to North Richmond on Mondays and that was a half hour drive. And then the rest of the time, taking public transport to Piedmont. I really enjoy reading and listening to podcasts and music. But it's, it was kind of the cumulative effect of that, of sitting on a, a train 16 hours a week. The cumulative effect was this kind of fatigue and I'd been feeling that for quite a while. Having to wake up at five o'clock every morning 
and then often, because I was travelling so much and not spending much time at home, kind of feeling this kind of compulsion to, to stay up quite late. Working from home has really suited me. My health is better, I'm, I'm sleeping better. It's better just for my relationship with my, my wife and my daughter. We get to spend a lot more time together. I can have lunch with my wife. Um, she works from home as well. I can spend time with our dog. <laughs> Working from home has it's just been so good for me and my family that, yeah, I'm really hoping it can continue. We're going to now talk about house and land packages. We know they are a very desirable and accessible option when it comes to housing for many Australians. With me today is Paul Wolfe, Director of Porter Davis Homes. Paul, thank you for joining me. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thanks, Paul. Now, Paul, when it comes to a typical house and land package, what actually does it comprise of? Generally, as a consumer, look, that they included fixed price site costs, so guaranteed certainty on land that is available in any of the Greenfield estates. And then a list of generally turnkey inclusions, which would be things that you would say that are necessary to move into a home, things like carpets and tiles, maybe driveway and those types of things, generally not landscaping or letterboxes or those things, although some builders may get down to that level of detail as well. Mm-hmm. And then every builder has their points of difference that they want to include to say, okay, we've got other things and it could be stone bench tops or it could be high ceilings and things like that, which are nice to have. Probably the, the main thing then is adhering to guidelines. A developer will stipulate some particular things for aesthetics or design integrity. And we need to ensure uh, if we're selling fixed price packages that those things are adhered to before you can get a, 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 or what they call developer approved product to be able to be built in that estate. How much flexibility is there generally with the design of properties purchased as part of these packages? You know, can, can people say, could I flip the master suite with the bedroom number three down the end of the hallway. Do people have that optionality around house and land packages? Generally, in the volume building market where the majority of the packages are bought, there's less flexibility. Um, But a lot of builders have, and, and, and us as well, what I would call options that are already been pre-designed uh, for things that people commonly do. Yes. <laughs> Just design options to help enhance space, to add space or to add functionality to an area mm. that might not be in the standard designs. And it helps us pitch a more affordable price to the market. And then for people that are discretionary, would like to spend some more money in areas that's important to them, they then have that flexibility through design options. Mm. What have inquiries been like since the government announced the Home Builder Stimulus Package? Only 35% of our sales are as a result of Home Builder. What if that stimulus has helped our market gain confidence in a wider reach. So people yes. that were sitting on the fence before, they're still employed and they may have been thinking about this dream before but are now like confident enough to move forward with their dream. Yeah, I think it propelled people into action who may have been sitting on the fence for some time. Absolutely. Well, it expediates the process. Overarchingly, I think it's been amazing. Yeah, no, and I think it's, it's managed to 
kill a few birds with the one stone at a time when the country's really needed it. And Paul, how can people think about capital growth when it comes to house and land packages? Obviously, that's a big part of buying properties is what's going to happen to it in the future should people decide to sell it and the value of that property. How should people sort of view that when it comes to house and land packages? There's a lot of data that on average, a house doubles in value every 10 years in the greenfields. Mm-hmm. Now, the disclaimer to that is location, location, and now sort of say too that the disclaimer to that is size of block of land. So the capital improvement of what size block of land. So it's the land that appreciates, a house that depreciates. Mm. So it's the land value. The bigger block of land you've got, the more capital growth you can expect. So Paul, are you suggesting that in the future, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, people may knock over, if, if they've bought their house and land package today from, from whoever, um, and then they, in the future, the, the land's obviously still valuable, the house is devalued in that time, they will knock down and rebuild it again. Is that what you're suggesting when you, when you talk about how people sort of continue to make money out of their I think property? it's a natural evolution, like um, the eastern suburbs is a prime example of that. It's where people were looking at doing renovations in that space in Glen Waverley, Mount Waverley, all of these suburbs to the east. Mm-hmm. Now the cost of putting a new home, call it 40 squares for the sake of the exercise, like we, we would build into those areas, three living areas, double garage, en-suites in every kid's bedroom, blah, 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 for around four hundred and fifty to 500000 Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a big house. Like and a lot of renovations are in the 300s, you know, mm. so... I think people go down the, I might renovate first and then look at the options now that volume builders have. And there's a lot of us participate in this market and service this market. The outcome is amazing. Like it really mm-hmm. is. And for what you get for your money. Well, yeah. And people end up with a brand new house rather than a renovated kitchen or something that they've paid pretty much the same price for. Paul, thank you. That was really interesting talking with you. And um, it's an interesting space. Uh, it's obviously rapidly evolving. So um, yeah, it's it was fascinating to, have, to see where you're all at with it. So thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much. Before I sign off, I wanted to let you know about why we've decided to create this podcast. We know that property can be complex, baffling and incredibly confusing. And that's why we want to unpack with you issues that matter without all the jargon so you can really understand how they're going to affect you. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you want answered, please email us at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. Thanks and talk to you next week. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. Property Unpacked is hosted by me, Alice Stoltz. This episode was produced by Alexandra Spangaro, Stephen Claxton with production support from Hayley Cools. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au.